Even though we've been told by psychologists for decades, you're not guilty, you don't have sin. We, we can't do anything about this innate sense that we do. And so we project it onto other people, onto other systems, and we make them the scapegoat. Well, Christianity, the gospel has an explanation for that. And it's not just objectively true, it's inwardly satisfying. The, the guilt that I feel is real, but it's atonable. The, the shame that I feel is real, but it's coverable. These people that are are wrecking the world, and there and there are evil people in the world. The gospel has categories for that. These people, they're not gonna they're not gonna win. They're not gonna get away. King Jesus is on the throne. Everything that's happening right now is under His sovereignty. And when you have that confidence, it changes how you use the internet. It simply does. Hello and welcome to What Would Jesus Tech, a podcast that we exist really to help Christians use tech, find rest, and glorify God. Uh, Today we are joined by Samuel D. James. He's written for The Wall Street Journal, First Things, The Gospel Coalition, Mere Orthodoxy, and more. Uh, His book, Digital Liturgies, has received some significant praise. Um, In fact, so much that I, I just have this kind of contrarian attitude sometimes, and I'm like, oh, maybe it won't be that good. I'm gonna find holes in it. I'm gonna be the real expert, unlike all these people that I respect endorsing it. And and I just kept reading and I was like, no, this is an amazing book. I mm-hmm. I honestly believe this is one of the best technology books written in the last 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. I really think it's helpful bringing out some of the the older thinkers of Neil Postman and and that sort of thing and bringing it into this reality of the internet. So uh, thank you, Samuel, for joining us today. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here and appreciate those encouraging words. Yeah, yeah. I read your newsletter this morning. It's it's a it's a journey launching a, <laughs> a book. Um, going into that, uh, just for listeners who are new, my name's Andrew Noble. Um, I'm in pastoral ministry. My co-host Joel. Joel, what does your voice sound like for audio listeners? Hey, everyone. Happy to be here. Happy to bring some heavy technology point of view to it. Yeah, there he is. He's in the tech world. Like I, I meet up with this guy, and he's like, "Oh, we need to upgrade. What about 4K video and all this stuff?" He's just he loves tech. He is a tech guy. He works in tech. He he lives it, breathes it. Um, if tech news were cereal, he would eat it for breakfast. Um, <laughs> he just he just launched an Internet of Things product too, and we'll talk about that in another episode. Um, but but Samuel, we're gonna do a speed round first. So try to keep your answers to you know one sentence or two sentences if you can. Um, what's one of the favorite things that you do with your kids? Uh, going to the movies. Okay, cool. Do you ever post pictures of your children on the internet? I do occasionally. Okay. And you're okay with that? A defense of that? I feel awkward doing that though. My wife and I have made exceptions here and there. Yeah. So I, I try to be very discerning and like what I post is not candid like it's, you know, it's posed. And so they kind of like know what's going on. So I'm not like taking pictures of them while they're sleeping or something like that. So I I try to be a little discerning, but yeah, it it is kind of a gray area. And I I kind of expect that like people who start having kids, you know, around this time are going to probably not do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Kids growing up and reflecting on why are there pictures of me as a baby on the internet, whatever, like, you know, it's just weird. Uh, what church are you a part of? Third Avenue Baptist here in Louisville. Cool. What age did you kind of, did it become clear to you that you wanted to be a writer? Probably sometime in high school. I had a particular writing teacher who was very encouraging and 
uh, just kind of realized that it was the thing I was good at. Very cool. Uh, do you own a smartphone? I do. Okay. And uh, what what internet browser do you use? Well, so I have been using Firefox, but I have realized that in the uh, promotion for the book and doing these kinds of conversations, Firefox is actually really bad for a lot of this uh, software. So I'm using a lot more Chrome, even though it's a memory hog. Yeah, fair enough. And and for those devices, you talk in the book about using blocking apps in order mm-hmm. to help your focus. What apps do you use? So Freedom, I would highly recommend uh, for people to consider. It's very easy to use uh, and you can uh, block out everything. You can block out a select list. You can uh, calibrate how much, how long you want it to be blocked for. And uh, it's, it's very user-friendly. So uh, Freedom is, has been very instrumental. Freedom was help, very helpful for writing this book. Very interesting. Uh, last speed round question. Totally unfair to do this as a speed question, <laughs> but what is your book, Digital Liturgies, all about? Uh, it's about how internet technology shapes us heart and soul. There you go. One sentence. Uh, you've probably had to do that uh, a few times, you know, different different parties and things like that. I don't feel like I was a very good speed round interviewer with most of those questions. So I I gave you I gave you a good speed round answer. You, did, on the last you did a great job. I've <laughs> I've been I've given unclear instructions in the past and we've had like a five minute answer for one of those one time. That's okay. That's okay. That's what's editing. Speed round, for. Yeah. Um Okay, so so you can take as much time as you want with this because it's just a sentence in the book um, in the acknowledgments. But you have this story behind the the shallows. You were reading it like at a cottage. Can you just tell us that story and how <laughs> this book was so instrumental in your thinking? Yeah. So this was uh, summer of 2020. I remember it was a pretty warm evening. Uh, we had just moved back, or were in the process of moving back home to Louisville. We lived for three years in Wheaton, Illinois, which is where uh, Crossway offices are, and that's my employer. Um, so we had just moved, and um, I was on their patio, so uh, on my in-laws' patio, and had finished uh, Nicholas Carr's book, "The Shallows: What the Internet Is Doing to Our Brains," and was overwhelmed with the sensation of. This is a massively relevant theological conversation, and he's not a Christian, but he's making things that are making points that are extremely relevant for Christians. And I don't really see any other Christians engaging with this particular material. Uh, and so that started a journey. I, I didn't know at that point that it was going to culminate in a book, but I, I knew at that point that part of what I wanted to do with the next couple of years of my life was to basically raise awareness of this kind of insight into the cognitive and social and emotional effects of the internet and to, to bring it to bear on Christian conversation and have Christians kind of have scripture and Nicholas Carr talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, cool. I think it's really interesting when Andrew first told me about this book, he's like, look, digital liturgies, it's actually really good. Um, been reading it and the first thing I heard was liturgies you know it's like okay this is a little bit what does that mean like I'm used to associating that with more orthodox um, faith movements right and I was reading the book and I, I gleaned that you call digital habits not just habits but like liturgies so could you unpack 
that what yeah. makes a liturgy? What does that really mean? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. In the book, I, I kind of lean on James K. A. Smith's work on cultural liturgy. So uh, James K. A. Smith, who wrote um, a book called Desiring the Kingdom, and then kind of adapted that into a shorter argument called You Are What You Love. These are books that essentially advance the idea that um, our habits are formative in creating us to be certain kinds of people. So there are practices that we can immerse ourselves in that make certain truths more plausible to kind of our emotional or psychological uh, selves. And so what I what I saw in Nicholas Carr's book was a scientific insight that the the internet operates kind of with its own logic that there is a kind of intrinsic quality to the internet that that kind of leans on us to think in certain ways and feel in feel in certain ways and that right there was the vocabulary of a liturgical space um and so it's for most people what they know of the word liturgy is a church liturgy and a church liturgy is its kind of collection of practices its order of service whether you have a, a proclamation of scripture, corporate prayer of confession, preaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, all of these practices are designed to kind of press home a particular truth on the conscience so that we feel the plausibility of the gospel in a way that is much deeper than if some somebody simply met us at the door and said, hey, the gospel is real. Now you can go home. Uh, it's much more powerful, much more immersive than that. And that's that's what I'm applying to the internet as this habitat that actually has particular effects on our emotions, on our values, on our sense of ourselves, and that we come out of these habitats feeling certain truths and certain behaviors more plausible and other truths and other behaviors less plausible. So it's it's the idea of a liturgical space being this formative space where we're kind of immersed in this story, we're immersed in this set of practices that makes us feel the plausibility or the implausibility of certain realities. Cool. Yeah, it seems that if you look at how churches have talked about themselves and talked about how to live the Christian life, it's a lot of our thinking shapes our doing, and even our thinking shapes our feeling. But you're flipping it. You're saying, no, 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 our doing shapes our thinking. Our doing shapes our our feeling. And there's a relationship there. I, and I, I remember learning from Alistair Roberts, like there is this mantra in or mantra or or teaching in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount of like telling you, well, close the door, pray by yourself. That doing is going to shape your feeling and thinking about God. Have that practice of private prayer so that you won't be more hypocritical. And it just seems like that that's hard for Christians to wrap their mind around. They they just have a more instrumental view of things that our thinking will shape our doing. Why do you think Christians struggle with this idea of, you know, like, because they haven't perhaps read the James K. Smith, they haven't read Atomic Habits, they haven't read whether Christian or non-Christian. Why do we? Why do people struggle with this doing shaping our thinking? Yeah, I, I think first of all that it's it's a it's a circular relationship. So our thinking does shape our doing, but our doing shapes our thinking, and so it's kind of this whole person relationship. If if you're dealing with a machine, 
then the machine will only put out what is put into it. And so you can have a very linear relationship between what goes in and what comes out. If, if you want the machine to do this, then you have to type this value in it. And unfortunately, that's uh, a, a kind of a metaphor that many people have of human beings, that we are a uh, little more than kind of regurgitation machines, that whatever we take in uh, is going to come out and that relationship is really linear. Well, that is true. I mean, obviously it's true that we must guard our hearts and that, um, uh, you know, Jesus said uh, out of the out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's true. There is an inside out relationship, but there's also an outside in relationship. And I think we, when we interrogate particularly the doctrine of ecclesiology uh, of the church, then that is where the outside in nature of our Christian life really becomes apparent. Uh, because we're not just saying that church is only church if you go into church with the right mindset, if you obtain the right kind of data from the sermon or from the singing, and you kind of ingest that like a medicine, then that'll just that'll create a new person. It's actually more external than that. If you go to church, the, because God's spirit is among his people and because you are members of his body, there is an outside in shaping that happens. You you are changed because you are among his people and in the presence of the living God. Uh, and so people, but people don't think that way. And that's one reason I think that there's been a lot of confusion and uncertainty over why can't we just stream church? Why can't I just stay home and watch church online? And pastors that I talk to are, are sometimes struggling to kind of connect the dots here and say, well, I, I know that they need to be here. I know, you know, they need to be part of this community. We need to see them. Uh, but I, I, you know, other than simply defining the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, it means assembly. Uh, other than simply defining that, I don't really know how to explain it. Well, that's be probably because there's a implicit assumption that it's all inside out. So like I, when I go to church, I'm simply trying to download the music. I'm trying to download the sermon into my mind so that that will produce the desired feelings and desired actions. But that's not all that's happening. There is something embodied and transcendent about the assembly of the church that has a spiritual impression on us as Christians. And you cannot simulate that. You cannot uh, manufacture that into a streamable commodity. Um, and so I, I think it's really important for, for Christians to challenge that kind of machine-like anthropology that, uh, that, that we have. And, and James K. Smith does a really good job of interrogating this in You Are What You Love, which is a very accessible short book. Uh, but he does a really good job kind of tearing into this, this notion that humans are simply cognition machines. We're, we're far more complicated than that. We are shaped by environment, shaped by habit, uh, and then these the relationship between our habits and our consumption and our uh, actions and our feelings are kind of in a, in a whole circle, not simply linear. Yeah. So I think it's really good to, to understand that like, you know, we are creatures of our habitat, right? Our environment has an effect on what we develop and who we turn into, right? It's like, like you said, it's circular. In your book, you really spoke about uh, in one section you know what's happening with gender in our society today how 
would you tie the dots to say that the internet really has led to you know where gender or gender identity has come today yeah so there's always been gender dysphoria right so that's always been a uh, a psychological malady there's always been um you know situations where people will uh, feel uncomfortable in their own skin or um they will s- kind of seek sexual arousal by pretending to be somebody else that's that's always been the case that's it's been around forever what's not been around forever is the plausibility of having this uh mind body dualism where your fundamental identity is not your embodied person but is in fact a kind of a mental state that must fight to change or resist uh, what's the identity that's coming from your anatomy that's new and actually i think that one of the powerful vehicles of that has been the internet in the sense that everyone well not everyone but i'll say i'll say much of the emerging generation certainly much of my generation and probably even to a greater extent gen z we've come of age experiencing the world in a disembodied medium so when when we learn how to research when we learn how to communicate with friends when we learn how to entertain ourselves we are essentially habituated on this medium that is completely disembodied. No matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter from where we're sitting, we can have the same kind of experience of the world. And that communicates to our consciences day after day in a very subtle way, but very profound after a long time, that we are not our bodies. You are not where your location is not where you actually are because the internet brings the world to you. You are simply a mind of content. You are a, you are what you choose to post. You are what you choose to create. And there's a separation that happens between the person and the material, the product. And when that, when that kind of becomes the, the main operative metaphor, so to speak, or kind of the superstructure of a generation learning how to engage the world. I think it's natural that they don't feel the objective givenness of their bodies. They they don't they don't feel that. It's absurd to tell a person online, um, "You're a man, not a woman," because of what's between your legs. You, it's it's absurd because the online medium is a medium that constantly deflects attention away from embodied reality. It's absurd. It would be like trying to deliver a pizza through a screen. Like you can't do it. The medium and the and the reality simply do not agree with each other. So I think that's a profound kind of psychological or phenomenological way of understanding the transgender revolution as partially an outgrowth of internet's ascendance into kind of this chief cultural um, way of understanding the world. And for listeners who are kind of interested in this, I would highly recommend if you haven't listened to the the podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, uh, it's a well done podcast, very, very thoughtfully produced, uh, very challenging, I think important things for uh, for Christians to consider. There is an episode of that podcast that talks about Tumblr and how Tumblr, it, for people who don't know, Tumblr is a social media website that used to be pretty big with a with my generation, kind of like more, I think more 10 years ago than now. But Tumblr became this epicenter 
of gender dysphoria, of gender identity. And there was a complex relationship of online role-playing and fan fiction and pornography that kind of combined in order to create this really cohesive online community where people identified as having these gender dysphoric experiences. And the episode of the podcast really makes a strong case that that is a big factor in the ascendance of gender ideology among particularly Gen Z. And I highly recommend uh, checking that out. But I, I think there's a lot to that argument. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, he, and you could even think about it in more specific details, complementarianism. You know, you think about just the natural default posture of the internet is everyone can take on any role any identity um, compared to something like a fireplace and setting up a fireplace, well, or a hearth in your home, there's going to be roles that end up, oh, who's strong enough to cut the wood? You might just naturally embody the role right. that your natural strength leads to. And right. yeah, in the digital world, we don't have that. And so when you live it over and over and over and over and over again, some things become more plausible, some things become less. Um, yeah. On the internet, there are no men and women. There are just users. So that's mm -hmm. that's our kind of uh, degendered lingo that we use online. There's There's a user. There's a user behind that computer. There's a user behind that account. And that language is degendered for a reason exactly what you're talking about, that there is no embodied reality online. There are simply names and pictures and kind of mental projections of a person's uh, will. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is something that I think we should make sure is clear to listeners right now. I had a little bit of a challenge in and reading the book because when I hear the word internet, uh, it's not what, uh, and you kind of preface in the book, it's really you're speaking around the social internet that's been mm -hmm. built on top. Yeah, um, yeah. But and 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 I was talking to Andrew about this earlier. For most people, that really is what they think the internet to be. But because I'm working in the space, internet to me is like it's a utility like electricity, right? Right. So you can use electricity and you can build things, and some things can be uh, more embodied, right? Like chips or computers. And some things can be like less embodied, like a radio wave, which mm -hmm. is like traveling through the air. And both of those use that like underlying structure of electricity. Yeah. So when I like think about internet, you know, for me, it is really the utility of, you know, information flow, you know, that a mm -hmm. telecom company provides. And most people will think about like, well, what do people do with that utility is like, okay, we have these uh, websites, a social graph, stuff like that. Right. Um, but Andrew mentioned, I recently launched a product that's really focused around like the internet of things. Mm -hmm. So it's actually using this utility to now cre create embodied or physical objects. And, and there can be a, a reality where the internet actually does tie in more to our physical reality. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I, yeah, just wanted to make sure that when we talk about internet today, it's mostly around the social structure or, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really helpful reminder. And and I, I kind of, I use the phrase that I heard my friend Chris Martin use, which is the social internet. And I, I like the phrase the social internet because the phrase social media can can immediately conjure up a finite number of apps. So if you say social media, people instinctively think of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. 
Um, but I think, I think YouTube, I think Reddit, I think uh, spaces like that belong in this conversation, but are not normally categorized in for most people as the same kind of social media that those other sites are. So, I, but I still think the social internet is a good description of exactly what you're talking about, which is you have kind of the objective technology of the internet and, and the, um, the, uh, the physiological nature of how that all works. But then you have kind of the, the culture that's built on top of it, the culture of online. Uh, and that's, that's why the subtitle of the book says, you know, an online age, not, not just an internet age, but an online age that where mm -hmm. people are, people are on these kinds of uh, spaces and kind of on these habitats. And, you know, one of the challenges of, of writing a book like this is that it's really a book of epistemology. Uh, it's, it's really a book of how, how do we think clearly? How do we feel clearly in these spaces that kind of are suggesting other ways of thinking and other ways of feeling? Uh, and so I, I tried to write it in such a way that people would identify with the experiences being described, but it would not feel like I was purely talking about Twitter. Or like I was purely talking about Instagram because that's that's a challenge too. Like I I don't have any experience being on TikTok. I don't have any experience being on any number of of social media websites. So so I didn't want it to sound like it was simply coming from one person's experience of one slice of the internet because I think in Nicholas Carr's book in particular and uh, Carr's book is actually quite provocative in this way because he's he's talking about hypertext. He talks about uh, just the effect of hypertext on cognition and some of the social studies that he's presenting as evidence for a, for a cognitive effect of hypertext really do go beyond what we would consider social media and go into, like, for example, reading ebooks or uh, reading electronic uh, copy. Um, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. sorry, if I'm rambling a little bit here, but uh, there's a there's a new book uh, uh, by John Dyer called People of the Screen. And it's a uh, it's a history of electronic Bible software, and it's fascinating, very well put together book. But one we of had the him on the podcast I, actually. Oh, did so, you? Okay, yeah. Did yeah, you talk? We dove, we did dove you talk about? It. Yeah. Okay. So did you talk about the uh, the reader recollection survey, like that he did, like yep. giving? Okay, yeah. So I find that absolutely fascinating. The fact that you can hand people the same text on two different mediums. And they come out not only remembering disparate things about what they read, but also feeling differently about yeah. it. It affects them at, a, at a, an emotional level. And I, I think that's, I think there are depths there that honestly Christians need to explore with much more uh, urgency than, than we often have to this point. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I talked okay. to my pastor about it recently and, and I'm like, yeah, I used to literally two years ago preaching, I would have said, Hey, pull out your Bibles, open up your Bibles or pull it up on your phone. I would have said that two years ago. Um, but since reading his book, even though he adds the caveat that like physical Bibles are technology, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I would just, I would want people to stay away from their phones, um, you know, on, on Sunday mornings. The more I learn about it, the more cautious I become about making statements like that and normalizing phones and God's gathered worship time. Sorry, Joel. Mm. No, I think uh, Samuel mentioned like, oh, like hyperlinks or hypertext is a little bit of a tangent, but I actually think it's a pretty good uh, metaphor to kind of like really understand how like the design structure affects how we, you know, interact with information and also structures our brains. And, you know, we've talked about this on the pod a little bit, uh, a couple, a couple times before on like how design affects 
how you interact with it, which also shapes your brain. Um, but I do think like, for example, in the hyperlinks example, uh, if you click on a text and it leads you to another topic and then there's another hyperlink, you click on that and it leads you to another topic and you're going down this rabbit hole of topics. In the older days, you know, even predating printed media and you had a conversation, there wouldn't be a hyper text in someone's voice, but you could open-endedly ask them about any particular topic that they were speaking to. So I think what what's important is like you could have gone down a rabbit hole, except now that by putting these anchors into specific points, we are suggesting almost paths of deeper discussion. And that is influencing more people to go down, let's say, a, a path that the designer has put in place. And I think interestingly, if you know, as we move into the next era of digital technology with like artificial intelligence, for example, one of the big things with, with Google is like, hey, we're not going to have searches. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, sell your Google stock. It's not relevant anymore because you're not going to go and search and have like 10 hyperlinks. It's like you're going to ask a question and you'll just get an answer. And that, again, changes the way information is shared. Um, obviously, Google is investing a lot in AI. But I do think as some of these technologies come, you know, again, built on where Internet's going in the future, it will again change, you know, how we're interacting and how our, our brains are brains are shaped. That's a really good observation. And I get a lot of questions about AI uh, whenever I kind of talk about the content in the book. And AI does not really make an explicit appearance in my book. Um, partially because um, I, I was kind of just thinking in other categories, but also because I feel like AI is, at least for me, I, I feel like it's it's kind of in a very volatile stage right now where it's oh, yeah. changing very quickly. And it's it's hard to say like, oh, X, Y, Z is true about Christians and AI because the AI could look very different, like even a month from now, much less five years from now. So I, I want us to kind of be able to think about things along a, a longer term grid. Um, and I also think we need to be wary of technological determinism. So, uh, you know, there, there is kind of this spirit in some corners of, you know, whatever kind of new innovation, like, you know, sell everything you have, get this new innovation, it's the future. And I, I think there's quite a few people who regret doing that now with crypto. Like there's, you know, there's quite a few people who kind of sold all in to a certain cryptocurrency and, they regret that now. And it, it's not necessarily that that there's no truth to some of these conversations or speculations about, about online currency, but it's that there is kind of this almost triumphalism in a lot of spaces mm -hmm. about what these, these kinds of digital tools will, the role that they'll play kind of going forward. And I think we just need to be mindful that, that behind these technologies are ultimately people and things change because people change and markets change. And we just need to be mindful of that and not uh, not necessarily assume that the way things are right now is going to be the way things are 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And bringing it, I'm glad you said that point there at the end of, of bringing it back. There's people behind this. There's, there's people developing and building this. There's people using it. And when we think about the very human story of the last 15 years, experiencing living out these liturgies of social media, the social internet, we're dealing with, we all know it, increasing levels of restlessness, you know, digital distraction, a kind of digital shame. Um, people have called it an ambient anxiety. 
it's just it's just there. We all know that something's different now compared to where it was before, especially you see this in teenagers. But it's true of all of us. There's just a different level. And you can't just, I, I like how in one section of the book, you're like, yeah, there might be this. There might be these other factors. You're not saying it's only social internet or whatever. Um, but but there is obviously a, a correlation, and Jonathan Haidt argues a causation, and I agree with him, of what these social internet, social media things are doing to us. Um, now, one of the things that I really appreciate about your writing is, and I and I don't think this is a tangent here, but thinking about the therapeutic self, the way that we we approach therapy in the modern world, you you seem to take issue to to some of the ways that self help or professional help kind of focuses in on the inner person's experience. And okay, well, here are ways that you can fix this, you can fix this, you can fix this, that don't deal with the technology that they're using, the liturgies that they're embodying. Um, tell us more about this relationship between, you know, anxiety and internet or social internet use, as well as perhaps it's a second question. So not to set you up with a two-parter, but but how do modern therapeutic approaches kind of fail? Um, what are they doing that might not be as helpful as they're portrayed to be? Yeah, that's that's super, super good question. So uh, in terms of the first question about anxiety in the online age, I, I think there's just a lot of compelling evidence that particularly the smartphone has correlated with a massive uh, uptick in particularly adolescent and pre-adolescent anxiety. And uh, Jonathan Hyde, as, as you referenced, has done uh, really good work on this, uh, but also Jean Twenge in her book, uh, iGen, and then her latest book, Generations, really lays out compelling sociological evidence that there is a very strong correlation between uh, widespread use of smartphones and tablets and uh, increased reports of anxiety and depression uh, among uh, younger people. And I, I think that, I think the evidence of that uh, is, is very strong and is, and it doesn't get weaker anecdotally. Like if you kind of, if you kind of know people right. in this cohort, or if you kind of are able to keep an, an ear to the ground of, the kind of conversations that people are having, there absolutely is an ambient uh, depression and ambient anxiety in a way that there, I mean, there wasn't when I was a teenager, like when I was a teenager, no one was talking, no one at, at 16 was talking about mental health. No right. one was. Absolutely. Uh, and and I I don't think that's I don't think this is simply an issue of well there was a taboo against it and that's why nobody said it but everyone was still depressed and as anxious as they were I don't think that's true I I don't think people were as uh, aware of their emotional state uh, and the emotional negative state that they have I don't think people were experiencing that in the ways that they are now so I absolutely think that there's something to that. Uh, and that's something that particularly pastors and and youth ministers and people in church ministry, I think, need to be absolutely aware of. Um, I think there is a tendency, maybe maybe I'm alone in this, but I think there has been a tendency in kind of some evangelical spaces in which I've lived to assume that the emerging generation only needs the law preached at them. Like they need they need to be woken up out of their licentiousness, out of their disregard for authority, out of their kind of libertine uh, self-expressive individualism. Uh, and there's an element of truth to all of that, right? But I think I think Christians, particularly in ministry circles in 
evangelicalism really underestimate the degree to which if they're speaking to a room full of 50 teenagers, I mean, probably 40 of them are thinking and feeling in terms of severe mental health struggles, anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide. I mean, that is an enormous percentage. I, I think it really is an untapped and, an, and a less talked about than it needs to be um, topic. So in terms of and in terms of how that happens with the smartphone, um, I think I think a couple things happen. One, I think with the smartphone, you you have endless access to your peers, and what 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 happens is the same thing that happens in a high school. There's a hierarchy that develops. You put teenage you put you put two hundred teenagers together in the same building five days a week. They're going to build a hierarchy. You give a teenager a smartphone with five hundred followers and, and an Instagram list. They're going to build a hierarchy. And so these same dynamics that everyone has to go through as an adolescent, but we, but we get relief from them, right? We don't have to, you know, when you're growing up without the internet, yeah, high school can, can be really hard. There's, there's, uh, you know, a lot of pressures and a lot of insecurities that come out, but there's, there's natural relief valves from that. Like Mm -hmm. you you don't all, you're not always in those contexts. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're carrying our high school cafeteria in our pockets. We're carrying those dynamics with us all the time, and there is a weaponization, essentially, of the the same kind of hierarchical queen bee, uh, alpha male dynamics that we've all experienced in some degree. Uh, There's a weaponization of that to where it just follows us around all the time. And Mm -hmm. and the second thing that I think contributes to that, and it's related to the first, is uh, I think when you you give somebody uh, the internet then eventually they're going to want to be somebody. They're going to want to have an identity. And because um, who you are is not enough online. The internet only, the social internet only exists if content exists. It only exists if expression exists. So simply Mm -hmm. showing up and being me and going to my classes and being a good friend, that's not enough in 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 the social internet economy. I have to craft this fascinating narrative of who I am and find this kind of sense of purpose and identity in being a unique self. That is an exhausting thing for a 34 year old, much less a 16 year old. I mean, 34 year olds work themselves to death and destroy relationships and and make a mess of their lives trying to do this much less a a 16 year old who, for whom all these like social dynamics feel like they're going to last forever. So I, I think that's two really uh, significant sources of anxiety from the digital age. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the, in terms of the therapeutic question, um, I, I could go a lot of different directions here, but I'll, I'll, I'll do this one. I, I think, I think where mental, mental health care and therapy are effective is when you have two people, so I'm just taking in one-on-one therapy, two yeah. people kind of talking together and there's specific questions being asked and specific solutions being talked about. And you're really kind of getting into what the details of this person's struggle really is. And uh, you're, you're kind of contextualizing it for this person. The problem with putting therapy culture online is that everything becomes content. You know, that famous Marxist saying that all that is not solid melts into air. Well, uh, or all that is solid melts into air. Um, all that is solid melts into content on the internet. 
like every, everything becomes content online when you, when you put it through the machine. And so when you put therapeutic, uh, and this, this is true, even if you're talking about Christian therapeutic, right? Even if you're talking about Christian counseling models, if you, if you put this through the online content machine and you come out with memes, those memes tend to normalize what is supposed to be a, a, a kind of like emotionally surgical procedure on one person and that puts it in the water for everyone to drink so that everyone now thinks, oh, I have crippling social anxiety because I was so tired. I didn't want to go to the party last night. Oh, yeah. I have, I, I must have been traumatized by my fundamentalist parents because they didn't let me go watch whatever movie when I was 18. And so you're, you're, you're normalizing this almost sense of identity, uh, of the identity of, um, What's a good, what's a good word for it? I was going to say trauma, but I, I don't want like to really get into that word kind of yeah, thing or yeah. Or the, or, or the, or the pathology of the pathology oh, yeah. of therapy. Like, like mm-hmm. just, I, I, I am, I'm an eternal patient because of this content that's like streaming out. So I, I, I think that the danger is not that people are getting too much mental health care. The danger is that they're getting junk mental health care. They're getting absolute mm-hmm. junk from Google from inspirational memes from uh, from just like the most random sources and of course because the internet has a flattening effect on things like expertise everyone's narrative is considered to be equally uh, authoritative to the next person and so you end up with uh, basically whoever has the most likes is kind of the the most trusted person and that's a very dangerous place to be when you're talking about things like mental health sorry does that does that answer the question Totally, totally. I like you said. There's a lot of different directions, and I know you've written on on the therapeutic culture in different ways. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating to me the extent to which people find. Like, I I have a friend who who literally says like, "Oh, TikTok's been really helpful for my mental health, but it's also been really bad." But like, there's some really good stuff. Like, <laughs> like there's an there's an awareness of yeah, it is like eating candy. And that's bad. But then every once in a while, the candy is just so insightful. And it's like, mm, don't know if that's really helping you in the same way. Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and what I would challenge people to consider the to consider is that online, you, you have these natural hierarchies of content. And so um, particularly as we've transitioned away from social media as kind of a network where you can really keep up with your friends, now it's become more of a platform. So uh, the idea behind social media, and there's articles about people who have realized that Instagram is just performative platform. Like they they registered an account 10 years ago to keep up with their friends, and now it's just influencers all the time. Um, as the internet has transitioned mainly into a performative platform, when you introduce mental health categories, you have to realize that a lot of what you're seeing is calculated to go viral. It is, yeah. there is a marketing mindset behind it. It's, it doesn't come from, uh, necessarily expertise or thinking very carefully about one particular situation or one particular issue. It's calculated to capture attention and to go viral. And I actually think that's the opposite of what mental health care should be. I don't think mental health care should be trying to make you into a somebody in the eyes of your peers. Mental health care should say, hey, forget what people are saying. Let's let's tackle your issues. Um, so I would be just very wary of uh, imbibing mental health, quote unquote, wisdom uh, from mm-hmm. any 
online platform that thrives on virality. For sure. Yeah, I think the more I read in this space uh, and kind of think of the systems that we have today, like, you know, you noted that the Internet's really around, it's like 20 years old and it's completely like accelerated and changed our society in many ways. Uh, And I think about our children, right, the next generation um, and what they're going to go into, like, you know, the high school cafeteria in your pocket, right? Mm. I think about like what you know, if you had a magic wand, right, but it was limited that you couldn't really ask for everything, right? Uh, you know, technology, Pandora's box has been all opened, but you could steer it in a different direction. You could build off of it in a way that could be healthy, that could bring more um, givenness and reveal more biblical wisdom and truth, you know? what sort of changes would you make in the world? And I think that's really what I'm, I've been wrestling with as like a builder, as a creator. Um, And I'm curious, you know, someone with your deep, you know, insight and study into this, you know, think about that. Yeah, that's a good question. So I would start without hesitation by restricting the sale of smartphones to anyone under the age of 17, 18. And there, there would be debates about you know, what exactly age, but I think getting smart devices uh, away from uh, minors is, I think that's, I I think that's a public health emergency. Honestly, I, I think the fact that the fact that we have been going for a decade now of kids who are 11, 12, sometimes younger, having limitless access to the web and a almost godlike ability to to see whatever they want to see or do whatever they want to do. I think I think we're going to look back on that in 40 years and say what in the world were we thinking? What I just can't I can't understand how any society could have justified that. I really I really do. I really believe that. Um so, you know, if you had the magic wand, that would be the first thing because I I, I think really the priority needs to be you know, as as deleterious as the effects can be on adults, and as as much as we're all struggling with these digital liturgies, I think that the cutoff point has to start with people who are going to be shaped when their brain is most plastic. They're going to be shaped when they're most impressionable. They're going to be shaped when their memories and their experiences make the most kind of uh, formative impact on their lives, and that means addressing the the issues with with children and with and with teens in particular. So, I, I think that would be the first thing I would do. I think the second thing I would do is I would force everyone to buy 10 copies of my book. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The second thing I would do is probably try to try to get pastors and uh, people in the church and people in positions of influence within Christian circles to, to start preaching and teaching theologically on this and to, to not kind of assume that, you know, this is, this is just neutral. Like I'm, I'll, I'll talk about porn. I'll talk about, you know, uh, you know, not like totally wasting your life online, not playing video games, you know, 20 hours out of 24. I'll talk about that, but otherwise like just, just use discernment. I, I would really like to change that conversation into something that's more conversant with the 
actual effects that these technologies have on real people. And the point is not, you know, I want everybody to put it in their church covenant that we're not going to own a smartphone. That's that's not the point. The point is that there's, I really think, a dearth of gospel conversation on these issues. And evangelicals in particular are now in the awkward position of kind of, we're, we're kind of following Jonathan Hay and Gene Twenge and people like that. And, and we're kind of coming from behind them and saying, yeah, see this, but what's happening? Unbelievers are leading the conversation and we're, we're kind of stuck like saying, yeah, they're, they're right. Uh, I would love to see Christians, people who believe in uh, that, that we are created in the image of God, that we have eternal value, that our bodies are, are going to be resurrected, that we're going to, that we're going to live and embody community forever. I would love for, for us to take the lead on this conversation. And I, I think there would be a, an incredible uh, missionary and evangelistic advantage to that, where the church really is going to bear witness to the truth simply by being people with friendship and people who can read mm. a book and people who can look at each other in the eye. Mm. Yeah, that's really good to think about. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see a future of that. Like I, I see it in some of my friendships. Um, and, and there just feels something different about having, you know, a friend you can say, I love you too, and not feel awkward about that. You can use this significant value, heavy language, um, in a way that the secular world doesn't have language for, um, I, and, and one thing I will say is that unlike other books that I've been reading on technology, even by Christians like Jock Lul or whatever, and you get into this, or, or Neil Postman, I think, is a Christian, they, they don't always weave together the gospel. Um, in fact, it's rare in mm-hmm. some of those books. Whereas in your book, there, there is a real integration with gospel truth of the resurrection of the new heavens. You know, you were even articulating some of it there. Um can can you can you go into that a little bit more? Like, why mm-hmm. is the gospel so important to you? Why or how do we really integrate the gospel with some of these digital liturgies? Yeah. So I I think at, at the at the end of the day, kind of the the fundamental issue is that we seek out these effects, these digital liturgies, uh, because we're searching for something. We're we're searching for something to um, to tell us that we're okay. We're searching for something to kind of give a shape and direction to our lives. We're 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 searching for friendship, searching for intimacy. Uh, we're searching for something to uh, tell us that tell us that the world is going to be okay. That those those people, those evil people that disagree with us on the screen, are are going to be taken care of one day. Um, we're, we're kind of searching for that, and it's it's the gospel and only the gospel that gives us a reason why we exist a solution to the biggest problem that we face, and then assurance that everything will be made right in the end. So so why we're made, an answer to the solution, an answer to the problem, the biggest problem that we all face, sin, death, this, this inward curving of the self, why is the world so broken? And then assurance that it's not going to stay broken. And and it's not going to stay broken because uh, it's not going to be made right because we do it because we can summon up the will we'll we'll finally triumph over our enemies we'll we'll punish the right people they will be driven from society and then the new jerusalem will descend down from heaven no it's god 
It's Christ. Christ has achieved a singular victory. And in the wake of his victory, we can seek to persuade, we can seek to love people into the kingdom, but we don't have to, we don't have to always be right. So there, that right there is the, that's the dissolution of outrage. So outrage culture, shame culture, the, the idea that nothing that offends me has a right to exist. And that this person who does something wrong needs to be removed from society. All of that disappears if you have a strong confidence in a righteous judge. We need we need a righteous judge because we we know something is wrong, and if we don't think it's wrong about us, then we think it's wrong about somebody else. We, we it's it's like the the Wilfred McClay article that I, I cite in the book. You know the strange persistence of guilt, even though we've been told by psychologists for decades you're not guilty, you don't have sin. We we can't do anything about this innate sense that we do, and so we project it onto other people, onto other systems, and we make them the scapegoat. Well, Christianity, the gospel, has an explanation for that, and it's not just objectively true it's inwardly satisfying mm-hmm. the the guilt that i feel is real but it's atonable the the shame that i feel is real but it's coverable these people that are are wrecking the world and there and there are evil people in the world the gospel has categories for that these people they're not going to they're not going to win they're not going to get away king jesus is on the throne everything that's happening right now is under his sovereignty and when you have that confidence it changes how you use the internet. It simply does. It changes how you how you stream. It changes how you communicate. It changes how you argue. It even changes how you learn. It changes how you think. Um, so, so that right there, I think, is kind of in a nutshell the, the heart of the book, bringing the gospel to bear on all of these dynamics that that seem so immersive, but really do lose their allure uh, in the light of the gospel. Yeah, I'm really glad we got to connect because I think. You know, the passion that you've been showing today and that you put into book really lines up with what we're doing here with the What Would Jesus Tech podcast. You know, there's this desire to, as you mentioned, equip pastors to speak about technology and the internet and like to have more of a, a stance, a biblical stance on that. And, you know, for me in technology, so Andrew, of course, is the one coming from the pastoral background. But for me in technology, it's a layered approach as to, you know, underneath the gospel, um, which you, you know, just captured and described, there's the cultural mandate also to like create. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do we use this layered approach to also empower um, technology builders and creators that are maybe a smaller portion of your congregation but are now creating the technology that will affect the, everyone in the next couple decades, right? And as mm-hmm. we look towards like, okay, the TV for a previous generation was this like cultural shift where everyone kind of sat around that and that became an idol in the home. And now it's like, okay, now it's in your phone. And it's like, well, what happens in the, for the next generation? What happens for our kids? And like, how do we change that? And not to say that we are, you know, obviously the risk of that is you, you don't want us to be saying that we are creating salvation, that we, it has to be under the gospel concept, mm-hmm. right? That like God is ultimately the solution, but that we can still in his grace do good with what we, what he's given us. And I think that's important. And I think really why we're existing and, you know, hopefully how we can, we can come alongside more people like you and and make this change in our world. Amen. That's that's really encouraging. And I'm so grateful for folks like you who are 
thinking through this at a, at a level that, you know, people like me can't like we can, I can reflect and I can kind of bring theology to bear on these conversations, but, but uh, there is an, a critical need for people who understand kind of the, the objective, the scientific, the, the technical aspect of this to, to, to think, how do I communicate with people about what this is? And then also how, how do we create technological innovations that honor God and respect uh, humanity that respect that being made in the image of God. How, and what might that look, how might that look different from some of the algorithms and some of the, some of the systems that have been built to this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said, Joel and I were arguing earlier. I said to him, um, or he said to me that will technology ever help us grow in wisdom or grow closer to God? And I was ready to type in response to him. Absolutely not. It is not technology. And he's like, but printing press, come on. Printing press was absolutely a game changer and it helped more people have direct access to God rather than the cultural malute, whatever was going on in the day. Anyways. So good word to end on really appreciate talking to you. Our Mm. listeners, just so you know, we're giving away three copies of this book. Thanks to Crossway. I was going to mention that at the beginning. Um, So you can share posts on social, but socials, but if you made it to this point and you literally send me an email, you will be entered into the draw because you'll say, I don't have social media. I'm, (laughs) I'm against that. I still want the book. So please send me an email and I'll be sure to respond to you and let you know whether or not you won, you'll be part of the draw. I'm not going to give a copy to everyone. We got three copies though which is great shout out to crossway thank you samuel so much for your time um really appreciate learning from you i will continue to learn from you hopefully you'll keep writing digital liturgies is your uh Substack or your newsletter i should call it um so uh thanks so much for joining us thanks andrew thanks joel thanks samuel take care everybody bye bye